welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. This week I'm talking to author and bookseller Martin Latham. What Martin doesn't know about books isn't worth knowing. Having worked as a bookseller for 35 years, he's seen it all. Starting out in an independent bookshop on the King's Road in Chelsea, he worked in second-hand bookshops and a couple of branches of Waterstones before opening Waterstones Canterbury in 1990. In that role, he's seen and done a lot, with my favourite anecdote being the fact that he was responsible for putting the cost of an archaeological dig through the petty cash. Martin's experiences as a bookseller and his clear love of literature are captured in his book, The Bookseller's Tale, which was published in September. Martin, welcome to Mostly Books Meet. Hello, I hope you can hear me okay. I can indeed. The powers of modern technology, eh? Yeah, my God. (laughs) Now, as with all my guests, I'm going to take you straight back to your childhood. So you were raised in Earl's Court and you were the seventh of eight children. Is that right? Yes, yes. I don't know if I was the um, seventh child of a seventh son because my father was um, illegitimate. Seventh of eight, big, rumbustious, uh, messy family. I'm nearly the baby. I'm the seventh, born in 1955. So I had the phone call recently from the pension company saying, oh, by the way, you're retiring in six weeks. And I said, "Uh, no, I'm not. (laughs) So, yeah, they all were keen on books. And obviously it was a pre-digital household. And my father collected lots of books because when he was young, he wasn't allowed to have any books except one book, which one of us has still got, got a gardening book. And he overcompensated and went crazy buying books every Saturday in Portobello Road and around the second-hand bookshops of London. So I grew up. I mean, actually, I thought of writing the next book about the house because the more I tell people, the more extraordinary it sounds that the front wall started to crack and collapse under the sheer weight of books in the house. So you said that in your book. The actual building structure was impacted by the volume of books in your house. Yes, is that right? it's hard to explain. What happened is that my father had one room he called his library that he filled with so many books, even though my mother was taking them out the back, sometimes as fast as he brought them in the front. There were these <laughs> piles and piles of books, and there was probably a bit of dry rot somewhere in the front beam holding up the front wall of the house, and this crack started opening in the front of this house. We had this big rambling house full of tenants that my mother had got with her parents' money in 1945 for £2,000. Now it's worth £8 million, but there was this big crack. Wow. And the tenants upstairs were very worried. And my brother got a girder delivered by a scrap metal firm, and the man was very confused who delivered it and said, where's the building site, mate? He was just delivering it to this house. And my brother's technically very clever. He became an architect later, and he literally jacked up the front wall of the house, replaced the beam, and closed up this gap magically that had been caused by books. Oh, my life. You said, in your words, you had a poshmar and a cockney dasa dad. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like an interesting combination. I did say that. I think it's the sort of marriage that in that era of class, uh, more class consciousness could only have happened in the war. So my dad left school at 14, orphan, East End, Dickensian upbringing, really. Worked in various jobs, undertaker, gardener, 
gravedigger even, joined the army basically to get a bed and a daily meal, I think, way before the war in the 30s. And then the war breaks out. And my mother, who grew up in a Yorkshire house, a sort of Bronte-like parsonage with servants, only child, became an officer in the Wrens, the Women's Royal Naval Service. And they both happened to go to Arabia, to Aden. And there they met somehow. Apparently the only place that they could speak to each other was in bizarrely in the Roman Catholic canteen. Everywhere else, officers and other ranks weren't allowed to meet. But uh, my dad said it was quite funny because he was meant to salute my mother whenever he passed her in the street. So it was a great wartime romance. Imagine if there hadn't been that one location where they couldn't have talked. Exactly. Well, exactly. And it would be, yeah, it'd be a great movie, really. I think it was a quite romantic tale. It sounds like it. And you said your dad was a great storyteller. Obviously, his love of books was built from the fact that he didn't have them as a child, but he then shared his stories with you growing up. Yeah, he was, in a way that I think lots of Cockney Londoners love to tell a story, and it's a very strong oral culture. From You, you see Dickens' characters who love telling stories. Lord Macaulay was at Kensington Palace once, and he overheard two footmen talking about something the king had done. And he said to them, what was that you were saying about what the king, what happened between the king and his mistress? And Macaulay tells this in a great style, the way the two footmen acted out the story. They didn't just tell the story, they acted out. So he goes like this, he says to me what, and he goes like this, and they, a whole body, and the body of one of the footmen became the king. So my dad told stories in that spirit. And often the same stories again and again. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, with good stories. Wilfred Thassadio, I mentioned in the book, Travelled Among the Bedouin, he would often sit down in the middle of the desert. He crossed the empty quarter famously and wrote this book called Arabian Sands. He would sit around the fire at night and one of the Bedouin would start up telling a story and he would say, oh, hang on, we had that story last night and they didn't understand the problem. So nothing wrong, wrong with really repeating the stories. So it was a house full of stories from his youth and from the war and Damascus. And I got a, few, a fair few stories out of my mother as well during the the washing up was a great time to be able to talk to my mother. <laughs> I think if you've got someone who's a good storyteller, even if they do tell you the story, same story time and time again, there's always going to be a slight variation in it, isn't there? Yeah, I think so. I wish I could convince my own children of this uh, <laughs> romantic fact. <laughs> and what was the first book you remember reading? That's a good question. It must be a book called The Time Garden. That I must have read when I was about 10. And it was about... Um, a boy and he had a back garden and there was a frog in the back garden called a natterjack toad not a frog a toad and through the medium of this natterjack toad he could time travel um and it was all about the stillness of the back garden and he'd gone to stay as so often he'd gone to stay with someone who weren't his parents i think a grandmother and i've had a several author well thousands of authors in the shop and the children's authors have often said the same thing kids books are books for kids only really get interesting when the adults clear off. So either the parents <laughs> have died or the father's in jail or gone to India, like in the secret garden. And that's when the magic starts, when there's a sense of, or the five, the five have gone to Kieran Island, like in Famous Five. Um, so this book had that quality. But like many people who might be listening to this, their childhood book, once you really ask them about it, and they get past the cliche of saying, oh, I read a bit of Famous Five or... Harry Potter. There's often one book that clicked for them that they reread. That they reread. Often they've told nobody. I tell the story in the book of people like my sister Sarah, who I'm closest to of the eight. I asked her this question writing the book last year, 
she'd never told anyone. And she told me about this weird out of print book about a family growing up in a tumble down house and the neglected younger sibling. And I said, uh, Sarah, sounds a bit, you know, familiar. <laughs> Comical how it predicts your life. And I suppose with the Time Garden, to briefly answer your question, it reflected a lot of my adult interests, which is nature, the back garden, animals doing things that animals knowing more than you think they do, um, and time travel. So I got fascinated by history, although like most of us, didn't have a very good history teacher, but managed to carry on and carry on with that interest in history and storytelling. It's called The Time Garden, and I superstitiously never bought it, but my daughter sent me a copy last week, and it's just as good. Last week? Yeah, she found a copy and sent it, an old copy. It's long out of print, and it's really even more apposite to my life than I thought. I must just quickly tell you that, just to prove this, last week I asked someone who works in the little Waterstone shop in Deal what book they liked as a child, and she said The Tiger Who Came to Tea, and she didn't see at all the link of that book with her family. I asked about her father. He was away a lot. When he came back, he, he could break the rules a bit and give them fun. They even had a red cat. Oh, what was your cat called? Oh, Tigger, actually. But she didn't, absolutely didn't see the link. Because for those who don't know yeah. that story, the father comes home and solves the weirdness of the day. And there's a big red tiger in it. So um, often people do not get the link. Yeah, you need somebody outsider's perspective sometimes to see it. You actually mentioned in your book the concept that you said about people not talking about the book that meant a lot to them. And you said that that was the same with this book for you, that you um, you said, I think you said you never told anyone about it or actually thought about why it meant so much to you. No, I hadn't. Having written the book, has it given you time to kind of percolate on that? Yeah, no, it, <laughs> it has given me time to reflect on how that sort of predicted my life. And it may, yeah, it makes me careful about asking people because it's it's a touchy personal subject. Often people think they've given up their childhood aspirations and character, but you find out, in fact, in their job, in some ways, they're they're carrying it on. I mean, somebody recently, he's not in the book, said, "Oh, I like Famous Five. And as almost as he was walking away, the French have got this great phrase, "Esprit d'escalier," the spirit of the staircase. As he was walking away, he said, "Actually, no, I didn't like Famous Five. What I really liked was." Secret Seven and, uh, yeah, watching the Brady Bunch. And he was in HR. He was into big, bigger teams. And I thought, yeah, well, that sort of figures. You like slightly bigger bigger teams going on and rationalising them. Maybe that's a bit of a stretch. But I recommend it as a party trick. Anyone, you, Even with someone, or especially with someone you know really well, what book was really something that made them curl up and get entranced as a child? And it often, if it doesn't show anything about their job, it shows a lot about their predilections. Oh, I love that. I'm going to try that. It's funny you said about the Famous Five versus Secret Seven, because I was really into Famous Five as well as a bunch of other <laughs> stuff. But my sister was really into Secret Seven. Uh, so actually, I wonder what, what that's all about. <laughs> I, well, yeah, I wonder. So fast forward to the present day. And so you're happily married to your third wife. Yes. Have five children and three stepchildren. Yes, it's been quite a complicated um, existence the last few years. That's why I haven't written the book before. I've been too busy with all of that. Yeah, I've been very lucky. But obviously the tradition of the big family is stuck with you. <laughs> yeah, people have pointed that in a sort of comical way. I've repeated the situation of having almost that many children. It's certainly true that I never thought another child was a problem, particularly so long as my partner didn't think it was a problem. Partly my father did, said this really awful, irresponsible pre-war statement that they always bring their own loaf. But we didn't have the Victorian idea that um, you need lots of money. 
to look after them. And I think they start looking after themselves. And I, I like the sort of anarchy that begins to break out when you get a lot of children in the house. And they play with each other, they look after each other, and the imagination takes over. But I did tell my first wife, I'm embarrassed to say, two weeks before I married her, that you do realise I don't want any children. <laughs> she was understandably pissed off. I didn't get that impression, she said. And of course, when they came along, I realised that Rather than being a break on creativity, like all these sort of boring old pre-Raphaelites used to talk about, the pram in the hall is the enemy of creativity. That's absolute rubbish. They fuel and renew your creativity and rejuvenate you. And even if you haven't got children now, I love just being in the bookshop with children charging around and asking for books and students asking for things. I think the presence of the youthful imagination is so important to stop us acquiring a sort of carapace of cynicism and becoming, I don't know, too, too drowned in arrangements, really. I totally agree. I um, always say to parents when they come into my shop and when they're, and they're telling their kids to be quiet, I'm like, don't tell the kids to be quiet. Come in and cause chaos because I just think it's the most fun thing to watch a kid loving a bookshop and, and wanting to look at the books and talk about the books. Yes. I mean, we went over the top a bit in Canterbury. I installed a slide and they'd <laughs> go down this slide as well as two rocking horses, which I've still got, and a fish tank. And I think that um, this that was a, a step too far, maybe because they were there were real screams, and it was quite hard to read anything. So we uh, retired the slide in the end, but we still got the famous two rocking horses, which I was repeatedly told to get rid of by various unenlightened people who took over Waterstones and then left. The rocking horses have survived, and the fish. So I agree, let kids run wild a bit and express their imagination, especially in a bookshop. Yeah. It's obviously strange times that we're living in. I'm currently recording this at the point where we have been through full lockdown. We came out of it. We had a period where it seemed fairly stable and now things are going a bit strange again. How are you finding life living with COVID uh, in terms of work, in terms of your personal life? How are things? We're very lucky so far. I mean, I was one of the first people to go back in the shop to um, take the fish back, actually, um, and start picking internet orders. And we're much luckier than so many sectors. Um, obviously, I was at home for a while. My wife carried on working. She's in the NHS right through, poor soul. But we're so much luckier than many sectors because people love books and they love bookshops. And I think this book, The Bookseller's Tale, has hit a good moment in the zeitgeist where people suddenly think, oh, yeah, bookshops. And they were thinking that anyway. There was a revival, just as a, there was a revival of vinyl. Um, I'm finding that among the younger generation, it makes me sound very old, they all, they don't have any CDs or DVDs in their house. They have vinyl records, a record player, and loads of physical book books. And they think the various e-readers that came along um, were seem now like a bit of a fad. So the short answer is, for us, it's been pretty good. I mean, our cafes aren't open. Lots of bookshop cafes aren't open. The high street's, high street's been deserted for a long time, as you know. There are still people who've stayed in for various reasons, they're frightened, they're old, they're shielding, who are yet to come out. So there's lots of sales to be made. And I think there was a longer trend, wasn't there, of us all worrying about the high street. Has it become boring? Yes, it has. Have chain stores made it corporate? Yes, they have. Are independents crumbling around us? Yeah, but I'm really hopeful because the lesson that several stores are learning, independents and chain stores, is they've got to become interesting experiences. And so people are coming back out because I heard this phrase, mm -hmm. the third space before. Have you heard that? Yeah. 
Yeah, the shop is a third space where you can go that isn't work and isn't home and just chill out and be and have a sense of community. So without being ridiculously, um, what's the word, panglossian, is that the word for over-optimism? Um, sales are pretty good in books. Yeah, we're finding the same, I have to say. We're finding an awful lot of people are doing what you just said. They're coming into the shop. We're almost their first port of call for anywhere else that they could go to when they first come out of isolation. We've had that with quite a lot of our customers. And that's been really lovely and really enlightening to be able to chat to people that have basically been locked away for weeks or months. And don't you find that you are appreciating them more? Oh, my goodness, yes. As people? Yeah, absolutely. We were closed for, I think it was three months. And it was such a strange time, obviously, being in the shop, but still selling books, but remotely, deliveries and so on. And then when the doors actually finally opened, I think the week before, we were all a bit nervous about what it was going to be like because we got used to this kind of (laughs) insular experience of us just basically wearing sports gear and playing music really loud and and, and (laughs) packing and (laughs) packing books up to go. But having the customers back was just the most amazing thing. So have you found more time or less time or is it basically stayed the same for your for your own personal reading habits during this time i think more more and better time i've got through my, and i think i've got this in common with the customers and most people i've either got through my to read pile all that big guilty pile of books you should read i've either mm-hmm. read it or i've had time to drill into it enough because i was at home like a lot of people for two or three months i've had time to go into it enough to think right i actually don't need to read that particular dostoevsky or that particular book by a 20 something wunderkind that will probably be pulped in six months that was a fad reviewed by a friend or something because you do get a bit cynical about some new fiction when you work in a bookshop and now i'm getting into more i suppose i've discovered my own real tastes more and People are reading different sorts of things. Customers are reading things like philosophy, self-help, yoga, lots of things about nature, nature guides. And I Mm -hmm. am reading more memoir, interesting, nuanced nature writing and novels that are a bit like Sally Rooney that aren't in the mould of sort of drawing room fiction, that sort of freshness that Sally Rooney brought to fiction, that Olivia Lang brought to non-fiction. So I'm seeking out those sorts of books. And the short answer is, yeah, I'm reading, I'd say I'm reading more. Yeah, it's nice to be able to carve that time out to actually say, this is this is what I love to do and I've actually got a bit of time to do it. What was the last book you read? I've just finished, or finishing, Slack Tide, which is by Eleanor Dimmott and is an absolutely amazing novel about a woman having an affair with a man. No, she's not having an affair. A woman in love with a man who's an older architect um, and whether she's just filling a gap because he wants someone. And he's very anally retentive and detailed and looks after her, but does he look after her too much? And the most important thing about it is it's funny, it's extraordinarily authentic and nuanced. It's got real places in and recent events in it, and you really like the characters because there are some books that you admit are absolutely wonderful, but you don't really give a damn about a lot of the people in the book you really like the characters and she's got a little background clique of or group of friends like in a sort of 90s rom-com who sit around the table with her and unpick her life and tell her to get rid of this bloke but she can't for some reason so slack tide really i think slack tide is all one word it's a paperback now it's only about 5.99 um and i've also read a book called i am dynamite a biography of nietzsche because i'm too thick to read nietzsche (laughs) <laughs> I don't even know how to pronounce Nietzsche, 
but everyone's reading Nietzsche, especially lots of young people are being Nietzsche and Camus. He's a philosopher that doesn't go away. Younger people do not go in, and members of the public do not come in and buy Socrates or Plato, but they do buy Nietzsche and a few of those interesting philosophers like that. Hannah Arendt, who bizarrely always sells, and there's now going to be a movie, a major movie about Hannah Arendt of all people. So I'm Dynamite, it's Sue Prido, and it's also funny and fresh. It's a favourite biography that had great reviews. How you can write a funny, good book about a philosopher like that, like that, I don't know. But she's sort of affectionate in laughing at the insanity. of. Many people ask me, how do I choose what to read? And I do see loads of books every day. So the result of that is that I jump from genre to genre all over the flipping place. Do you have to just have one book on the go at once? Or are you one of these people that can have multiple books on the go? I'm a multiple book reader. And um, I think some people have one book on the go and go through it with a real guilt thing and plough through it to the end. Mm-hmm. I've stopped doing that anymore. I don't know whether you feel you have to finish a book when you've started it. No, no, I don't. Not anymore. I used to. Me too. I used to. Catholic guilt. Well, obviously not Catholic guilt unless you're a Roman Catholic as well. Reader guilt. (laughs) Reader guilt. One of our customers has a 100-page rule, which I quite like. So if if you're not into it within 100 pages or he's not into it within 100 pages, he he stops reading it. And I think that's quite a good amount of time. I don't have a specific rule, but I just find if I don't go and go back and grab it on a regular basis, then it's it's time to just put it aside. Should have grabbed you by then, yeah, surely. Exactly. I have a theory that um, everybody has a book that has changed their life somehow, something that had a profound effect on them in some way, whether it's personal or professional. Mm. When we were in touch before this recording, you did have a book along those lines. Can you tell me what it is? I did. Before I talk about the book, I'm quite amused by the fact that I often ask that question in an interview for a bookseller, along with lots of other really weird questions to find out what they really like. I ask them what book, tell me about a book that changed your life. And a few people have actually said to me, out of the hundreds of people I interviewed, oh, I wouldn't say a book can change your life. Wow. (laughs) And I know what they mean, but I think a book can at a subtle level if those people haven't encountered a book that changed your life i think that maybe they need to or they're going to dare i say yeah they could be anything it doesn't have to be a communist manifesto turning you into someone manning the barricades or anything it can be just something that leads you to something or leads you to somebody or makes you feel okay about feeling something yeah absolutely it can just open your eyes to something new or different people or different perspectives it doesn't have to be massively so and it's often to do with who gives you the book yeah this book was called Arabian Sands and it was given to me when I worked at the civil service on my gap year in the passport office in a sort of chain smoking civil service office. There was a very eccentric man there, very camp man, but straight man. And he had a flat in Bloomsbury, a small flat, and it was all painted dark blue and had Moroccan lamps. And going in that flat was like going to the Arabian Nights. And he was an amazing cook. And he told me about this book, Arabian Sands, about a man who lived with the Bedouin of Arabia and I read it and was completely hooked and went on all sorts of feckless journeys. Now, I haven't got a load of bearers like Thesiger had, a lot of sort of native bearers, nor do I have any sense of direction. So I got lost a lot uh, <laughs> and really very incompetent and hurt my foot. But I think the journeys that go well are the most interesting. And that affected my life, not just in making me go travelling, but it's, and I'm, I absolutely admit to being a romantic western orientalist but in learning about how little the bedouin of the middle of arabia managed with and i always remember one brief vignette where they went to this ruin in the middle of the desert and there was a few desert flowers there 
And Thessida, who wrote the book, said, what a fantastic scent these flowers have. And the Bedouin said, no, no, come to the window, this broken window. This is the best smell. And there was no smell. They said, this is our favourite smell. And that extraordinary ethos, which I think he didn't make up. And interestingly, somebody said to me when I wanted to write a bit about this, oh, nobody's heard of Wilfred Thessida anymore. Since then, both Rory Stewart and the hunky Leveson Wood have championed Wilfred Thesiger. He was regarded as the last of the Victorian explorers, but maybe he was the first hippie. So I suppose I've had a bit of an unconnected hippie lifestyle without ever getting maybe what you might call a proper job. I've stayed in retail and book selling. So it affected me in all sorts of ways. I think it's the most proper job. I think it's the best job in the world. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. I'm quite fascinated by your travels. So did you do that? Did you do kind of a big stint of travels and take some time out? Or did you just do that over time and interspersed with your work? I went on repeat journeys. So for sort of four months in India and by train. And it's nice to remember now that we could go away without a mobile phone. And I slept rough in the Atlas Mountains. And I did a big long walk in the Sudan and slept out in the desert. I mean, all really reckless and incompetent. I wouldn't do it now. And if any of my children did a journey like that, I would want to ban it. I would not want to do it. I'd want to take GPS, sat phones and satellite phones and everything. But, I mean, what's nice is now that I travel in my head in the bookshop. So we've got, I love travel writing. And I love it when people come in and they're going to somewhere and they want a book about that country. And I'm fascinated by the debate as to how you should organise a bookshop. Should you put the books and the novels about a certain country in with the guides? Mm-hmm. I don't do that. But I love the, I love that broader view of a country rather than just buying the Lonely Planet and going everywhere else where everyone else has gone. I love that whole strand of travel writing and novels about places too. So it affects my book selling. Yeah, we tried that for a while, incorporating the travel writing with the travel books. And it didn't work as a sales point. But you're, you're right, it generated some interesting conversation. And I think... The combination of speaking to people about books and travel for me is I'm a, I'm a massive fan of travel. I've traveled a lot. Um, and I also had a similar experience in India on my first ever trip with no mobile phone. And I look back on it now and just think I was completely bonkers. Wow. Can I just, about India as well, there's some books in the shop. I don't know whether you've got any that you give a money back guarantee on. And I think although it's out of date, it still sells. I would give a money back guarantee on a short walk in the Hindu Kush because it's funny fresh self-deprecating but it is an amazing journey by someone who just walked out of their job at lunchtime they sent a telegram and it said isn't it a dream that a lot of people would love to do walk out at lunchtime send a telegram and leave your job and saying i'm going to the hindu kush in northwest afghanistan and it's still a fantastic classic book is what's your favorite travel writing book i knew you were going to ask me that and I, i'm gonna i'm gonna draw a complete blank i'm glad someone else does that <laughs> You weren't ready because you're very, you're asking about me. You weren't ready to be asked. Exactly. And I have this all the time in the shop and it's, um, it's, it's really traumatic when, when people do it because you, you know that there's a whole list in your head. I wander the shelves. Serendipity comes to my aid. I wander up and down the shelves and then the titles sort of speak, the shelves sort of speak. Yeah. And I'll do that thing where I, I start describing a cover to people because I can yeah. visualize it in my mind, but I don't, can't remember where it is. <laughs> I think so. I've begun to think recently it's like thermal imaging. There's something very odd going on. When you go around the um, shop, um, my house caught fire the other night and the firemen had this really interesting device that they sort of hold up and they they hold it across across the walls of near the fireplace to find out where the heat was. And I thought, yeah, in the bookshop, you've almost got that device. You go in and certain books have got a real warmth coming off them. 
Yeah. And the sort of books that might make you cry or the sort of books that were written very, very much from the heart of the author, unlike one travel writer that I met. And in desperation, I said to him, we'd done a talk by him. How did you come to write this book on Cuba or whatever it was? And he said, oh, you know how it is, Martin. You meet someone at a party. And I thought, no, I bloody well don't know how it is. And that book bombed. And it didn't have that sort of heartfelt commitment that some travel books have where somebody's really set out on a journey or something's really personal, like Bill Bryson's really funny books. Um, And that sort of thermal imaging theory of certain books almost emitting waves, and they're good good for that reason, applies to the books that are emotional and make you cry. I don't know whether a book has ever made you cry. Plenty. It's funny you should say that. I have this this concept. It's supposed to take four seconds for your brain to register something. And I use this a lot in the shop because there are certain things that you want people to be or people are drawn to anyway, just by turning the cover around and make, making the book stand out to the customer. But um, there's this thing apparently where it takes somebody's brain four seconds to register something. And if they haven't registered within four seconds, they kind of move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just I think that's really interesting when you look at people when they're browsing books and if they're moving around really quickly, how certain things don't catch their eye. But if they if they give themselves that time, it, it, I just find the whole thing really fascinating. Yeah, the psychology is really interesting. It's something I've never vocalised before because it's too off the wall. Is that if you touch and tidy a book a bit physically yourself, someone often buys that exact book when it hasn't been touched for months. I don't know what goes on there. It's, um, <laughs> yes. Some the French have a word remanence for the the feeling of that something the if you've got a bit of emotion about something or a room you know we all know it, you you'd probably know a room with a nice atmosphere people talk about a house with a nice atmosphere I think books attain and keep a sort of atmosphere if they've been touched and handled yeah it's that whole thing as well about you could just literally move from one corner of a table to the other and it doesn't necessarily need to be more visible. But for some reason, just by moving it from one place to the other, suddenly it generates a lot more interest in people. What is that? Is that not – that is so mysterious, isn't it? Yeah. It's good fun, though. Get to move stuff around and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> I'm quite fascinated. I need to read that book, Short Walk in the Hindu Kush, because that, that sounds brilliant. Um, and it make you laugh. Secondly, um, is your house okay? <laughs> yes, yeah, it is, it is, it is. Yeah, we've got this huge log fire and it just caught fire with the rest. Fortunately, my wife heard the crackling noise at two in the morning. Very exciting for the children to have the fire in the house. Oh, God. It is, it is okay, but we are going to have to buy a wood-burning stove, sadly. And, of course, that's deeply linked to books because reading around by the fire is quite good. And the subject of where people read is also really interesting. Last week, an old lady said to me that she reads for two hours every afternoon sitting on the sofa. She's in her 80s. I thought, God, that's such an end. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do when I'm in my 80s. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't know about you, but most of us get to read maybe in a cafe, on a train, at night in bed. Not many people. I've met customers who do it, and maybe you do it. Not many people sit down the way you would sit down to watch telly and just sit in a sofa and read a book about in the middle of the evening. I don't do it very often, but when I do do it, I find that I sleep much better. Yes. And I feel a lot more relaxed. Yeah, I slept really well last night because I had been really tired. I went to bed really early and read a lot. I mean, I I do ban screens in my life in bed. That seems to be a no-brainer for all the many books we sell now on how to sleep. And that's a growth area, books on how to sleep. Feng Shui, forget it. It's all about how do I get to flip and sleep? (laughs) 
don't look at a screen in bed. But there's something about reading, yeah. And I had a dream now, I remember now, about libraries, because I've been thinking of writing more about libraries and reading about libraries. Well, talk about libraries. Let's talk about your book, because that's a really... That's a really good segue into your book. So the book, your book, The Bookseller's Tale, was published in September. And it covers a whole bunch of different things related to books, your personal experiences, your your kind of analysis or views or meanderings, I guess, on books. But one thing that I thought was really interesting in your book was the bit about the Dewey Decimal System that they use in libraries. Yeah. And because I'd never even considered, I'd never even thought about where that had come from. And suddenly it's there. Now I feel educated. <laughs> It's amazing. And I, I used to work in a library organising books in Kensal in North London and just thought the Dewey Decimal System was God. It was God in every library. And I think I say in the book that the Dewey organisation, the Dewey Centre in when Don Dewey himself, the Library of Congress in America, sent out the most incredible number of library cards to libraries all around the world who imitated the classification of the Dewey system, which was deeply flawed and reductive and homophobic and not, you know, BAME, LGBTQ friendly at all. And so mm-hmm. I was really pleased to find that article in a Dutch library, library journal called It's Time to Dump Dewey. Yeah, it was just something that hadn't ever crossed my mind because it's just a thing that existed um, and the, the history behind it and what that now is was just, I just loved that. Wasn't he terrible? Yeah, awful. <laughs> I mean, almost mind-bogglingly nightmarish man, a racist, classist, everything you could think of. And yet he devised this library classification system. I didn't put it in the book because I don't understand enough about algorithms and coding. But I read a couple of arguments to say that the way that Dewey classified books has actually influenced the way the Internet works and the algorithms in the Internet work because it the, something to do with the wiring of our information system began with the first 50 years of everything being organised by the Dewey Decimal System. Oh, so he's cast a long oh, shadow, and I was really pleased to be able to sort of give him a good kicking in the book. <laughs> Hopefully some of it's funny. It's so outrageous. I actually laughed a lot with your book. I really liked it. Where did the ideas come from? The ideas, I mean, I think it partakes of the strangeness of working in a bookshop. Now, I don't want to romanticise it. I mean, there are many, many frustrations in every single job. But I think that if you go the flow a bit, and once you've been doing it for a few decades, and you don't get really worked up about the fact that you need to get a new fire extinguisher or the council won't let you put a sign on the pavement or the lights have blown and the man said he'd mend them or there's somebody coming in asking for a novelist that you really think is rubbish and you know they should just go away and, I don't know, you have Jack Black moments, Jack Black in High Fidelity, where you tell people just to go to the mall and they want Barry Manilow in, the, in your head. Once you get through all that attitudinising, it's such a varied job. You never, you literally never know what's going to happen next. And I've compared it in my head. To, is that, isn't that true of every job? No, it's not true of being an airline pilot. However responsible, you hit all those switches, you take off, you can have storms, but a lot of it is repetitive checks. And I know a knee surgeon who earns a load of money and drives amazing cars and he told me how boring his job is because a knee is a knee. And he said he doesn't even know the people's names who are doing the job. But I think working in a bookshop may be like being at the clinical end of the NHS, maybe like being a nurse or an anaesthetist. You see people in quite fluid, eel-like state. And the book, I always say the book came from the customers, from their extraordinary stories, recommendations and happenings, and from people I met in libraries and when I was an academic as well. 
yeah, it, the book is as strange as books are, I think, and as strange and books are as strange as people are. In fact, there's a Yeats quote that I didn't put in, which I find quite haunting. Yeats said, "The world is the world is made of words. Obviously, we look around and everything is, you know, that's the sky. The sky is called a sky because we we give it that word." But he said, well, words are dreams, they're just dreams. So the whole world is dreams. The whole world is a story, really. And without understanding the philosophy of that at any deep level, I think that the bookshop represents the dreamlike nature of the world. God, that's so poetic. How long does it take you to write? Because there's a lot in there. A lot of people ask that, and it's it's a great question. I, I, I want to encourage people to write their own books have this is my third book i wrote a little local book on kent which has sold about thirteen thousand of interest in you in kent and a book on london and i wrote those while i was working full time and i wrote this with just a three months off i think it took three months as it were sabbatical to finish really um bash through it but i was marinating as my wife said in my head for years three or four or five years i was thinking of it and making notes i'd make a few like many people i can't make a diary but i make a few notes of things that happened during the day in the bookshop actually it came out of being quite depressed and without knowing why i was depressed i was waking up in the morning feeling a bit low and i didn't know why and like many people went to a counselor counselor gave me the tip of just trying to write six nice things down at night before you go to sleep and it's amazing when you do that there's far more than six nice things and that became the basis of the book, I think, and of the next book, probably. These six nice things from work were amazing things that customers had said, encounters that had happened, or something with a plumber that had come to the shop, and home things, too, at the weekend. So does that get close to answering the question as to how long it, wrote, it took? <laughs> yes. But I wanted to encourage anyone listening to this who thinks, well, how did he do that? Dan Snow said something good to me because he's got kids and he writes – he said, well, what are you doing between six in the morning and nine in the morning? Well, most of us have got kids are chipping in and getting breakfast and getting ready for school. But there's usually an hour or two. And the morning time is so high octane, you can write double what you might write when you're knackered at night. And I've got to say, giving up drink helped. Now, at this point, everyone thinks I'm sort of some sort of staggering drunk and wife beater. <laughs> but because when you say you're giving up drink, people think there must be a problem. But I stopped drinking I'd have a couple of glasses of wine, like many middle-class people, sometimes three glasses of wine at the weekend, dinner, half a bottle. And I found then I couldn't read a book clearly after that. And I suddenly got fed up with reading, selling books to people all day. And then at night, knackered after a couple of glasses of wine, not really taking the book in clearly. I stopped drinking and that really helped my mind to continue to think and be able to make notes. So what was it that actually made you go, right, I've been thinking this three for years and years but what made you go right I need those three months off was that as a result of the depression or was it something else it was partly that I've got to admit which I haven't admitted in the book or maybe not to myself that it was wanting to make something of a job which some people don't take seriously I know it's a fantastic job because I know that Joe Public is amazing and I wanted to put that out there because so many academics have written books about books and the history of books and academics have written history books, which are a lot of them are boring. You know, there's how many, I mean, my wife said to me, make sure your book doesn't go in the history section <laughs> because I don't, I don't go to the history section. I thought, my God, lots of people never go to the history section. So I wanted to make it a memoir, make it interesting and celebrate the glory of this weird, wonderful connection between us and the physical book, which 
if you're an alien from space and you look at this piece of tech, it's 500 years old, made of paper, or it used to be rag paper, and it's still going. And yet we've seen, even in our brief lifetime, we've seen come and go, the compact disc, the MP3 player. But the book, for some reason, has remained this physical thing. And I wanted to celebrate that extraordinary connection and not really explain it because you can't explain it. You must hear every day people saying, there's something about a physical book. Mm-hmm. Is it Because it opens like a door to another world? I don't know. Yeah, it's just pure escapism, isn't it? And I think you do mention in your book, don't you, that whole thing about walking in through the door of the shop and do you like physically smell the shop? And I see that a lot. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, I love the smell of a new book and what an amazing place. And... Mm, we take it for granted, don't we, how many people say that? Yeah. I could spend all day in here, they say. And also, just finally, about why I wrote the book, I wanted to – I'm very keen on historians, public – historians having a sense of explaining to the public – we did an event, we've done events with a few historians who had that sense of a public, proper public mission. Their job isn't to sit in an ivory tower. And I love those guys. And I wanted to do that and show that history doesn't have to be dry. It doesn't have to be boring. It can be looped and woven into your life, which I've done. So when I'm talking about something historical, I'll suddenly bring in an experience of myself that illustrates that that hasn't gone away, that tendency. Mm-hmm. So the tendency of being frustrated with a book or loving a book physically so you crack it open, fold it, write on it. I still found that at the moments in the when I'm researching the book and I love a book so much I practically hug it to myself and write in it and really treasure it and keep it at the top of my bedside pile. And there are times when I hate a book so much that I rip the pages out and throw it out the window, which is sacrilege to some people. But it's cathartic. Yeah, we have a constant debate in our shop about whether or not you should be, and I quote, defacing books. I'm a page turner. You know, I I turn the corner of pages and people that work with me think I'm the worst kind of human being for doing that. Yeah, it's a real marmite activity, isn't it? Do you fold or not fold? So now this book's here and it's out. Um, It's been out for a little bit now. What's next for you? I mean, obviously you've got your day job, but you mentioned another book. Yeah, I've been thinking about that, the next book to write, because I think what people have liked about this are the it's the publisher called it a reluctant memoir they like the memoir bits and the the history and the fact that there are a lot of unusual women in there doing things and there seems to be a theme where the women don't go on about themselves and nobody's written about them as much as some of the dare i say stale white men who are titled like that my wife was is reading the book and said to me last night this woman's amazing this cuban woman who set up the john ryland's library in manchester mm-hmm. and then named it after her husband who didn't even have the idea of setting it up i'd like something that celebrates diversity in the modern sense has history but something that can be a bit of memoir as well so another book about bookshops is tempting and book history because there's lots of material that i didn't use and libraries or what would come easier because life is short and I want to write it quickly is a memoir of childhood. So why is it that My Family and Other Animals has been made into television series about three times over? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. with Rosie, there's something about a good narrative of a strange personal upbringing that gels with people. So it could be that the Rackety family in Earl's Court in the 70s, eight of us, 10 kids actually with tenants, is a story worth telling that would spool out into London. I could bring in lots of London London stuff and nature, and they're all very different. All of the eight siblings were extremely different in their paths and their outcomes. And I think how you 
as a parent or as a sibling or as a person, as an individual, how you become what you're meant to be is such a fascinating question. And how you slowly find your niche is is really interesting. I think I'd read that book. I think your family does sound really interesting. I was thinking that when I was emailing you before the interview and as you were talking earlier, I just think it would be an interesting, a very interesting read. So write that book. That would be good. <laughs> as someone said to me, why would they be interested in in me, this bloke nobody's ever heard of? I think the resonance would be the resonance that the, the Dulles has got, that it's another slightly paradisical land, this sort of West London parks and everything. And there's a resonance for all of us in wanting to become who we are. And hopefully it's funny. You know, everyday life has lots of humour in it. So next time we speak, we'll be talking about that book. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Martin, it's been time's just completely flown by um it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you so much for coming on to our podcast thank you i've loved it i haven't talked too much not at all and thank you so much for your book uh, the bookseller's tale thank you